before we start the sermon, I want to, it's going to look like I'm doing an advertisement, but I'm not. Um, a couple things to invite you to join in on. Uh, one is usually when we go to the Philippines, there's some downtime. Uh, Jordan and, and Joshua can attest to that. And there's, I always say, bring some books along. And I have this book called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction, which feels like a good book to read um, near the end of the year, heading into the new year and thinking about spiritual disciplines and, and whatnot. The first half of this book has some weekly habits uh, they include kneeling prayer at morning, midday, and bedtime. Uh, the second habit is a meal with others. The third habit is an hour with the phone off. And the fourth habit is scripture before phone. Uh, that encompasses just under 100 pages of this book, I think, um, or maybe just over. But if you are interested in reading this with me, um, I invite you to get a copy. And I'm going to read the first half sometime before the end of the year. Um, which I think just makes it manageable for all of us. And if you read it and you want to discuss it, we can gather and figure out a morning to get together or an evening to get together and talk about how to live this out. I'll send a link with this so you can find it if you're interested. Uh, but it's called The Common Rule by Justin Whitmell Early. Um, so had it for a while. I've been thinking about reading it. If you're interested in joining in with me and reading this, I invite you to do it, and then we'll talk about it together. And the second thing I want to show you is not really a book by anyone other than by Isaiah and by God, um, but it's this, this is a ESV scripture journal. I was given some of these when I went to a conference up in Chicago, and it's the text of Isaiah with a blank page beside it on every page. We're starting our study in Isaiah next Sunday. Um, and I thought, if you're interested, this could be fun to have. It could be fun to do your own reading through the book of Isaiah. It could be fun to, this is where you keep all your sermon notes from all the sermons that we do through the book of Isaiah. And you've got this handy little uh, book that has everything that you learned from the book of Isaiah that you can reference and, and have and, and look through. So these are ESV scripture journals. Um, and it's this is the book of Isaiah, obviously. So... I invite you, if you want to get one, they're available on Amazon. If you don't want to order it yourself, I figure it's probably easiest for everyone just to order it themselves. Um, probably 75% of you have Prime or a family member with Prime that you're mooching off of like I am. Um, so you can get it and get it just as fast. But if you need me to order something for you, I'm happy to do it. But those are my advertisements before we uh, start our sermon. Um, Today, for reasons that will hopefully be clear by the time we get to the end of the sermon, I want to take some time to remind us of the fact that the Word of God does the work of God. Um, that as followers of Jesus, we've been given the Scriptures and we've been given the Spirit. And as we hold to the Word of God and are led by the Spirit, we are able to powerfully do the work that He has called us to do as individuals and as a church. And apart from him and apart from the centrality of the scriptures and the power of the spirit in our lives, we cannot expect God to do any mighty work among us. And so what I want to do is seek to hear the call of scripture from various parts of the Bible this afternoon. And it's a call to never stop trusting the word of God to do the work of God. Never stop trusting the word of God to do the work of God. We could say that other ways. You could say, 
Don't trust anything else except for the word of God to do the work of God. Don't trust in anything else to, to accomplish his purposes in and through us than the word of God. But we'll say it that way. Never stop trusting the word of God to do the work of God. Uh, a week ago at this time, many of us were sitting under a canopy of trees on a very beautiful, unseasonably warm fall day. It was lovely. And in the wonder of that place, we looked at Psalm 148 and considered how God has revealed himself in heaven and in earth, how he is, he's seen in the, the brightness of the sun and the phases of the moon and the beauty of the stars in the countless sea creatures and wild animals and insects and birds that the kids gathered facts about, in the power of storms and in the, the grandeur of mountains, and even in the beauty of you and I created in the image of God, reflecting him in this world. And seeing that, we might ask, if, if God has revealed himself in such breathtaking ways in the created world, then why don't we spend every Sunday in the woods, aside from practical considerations, why aren't we outside all the time? Why don't we take time to study together the intricacies of all the plants and the animals and the mountains and the, the oceans, and then thereby be, behold God's glory in this world that he has made and, and placed us in? Well, on the one hand, efforts like that wouldn't be wasted, would they? We would do well to find ourselves often outside beneath the limitless sky, just looking up and considering the heavens. We would uh, do well to hike up a steep mountain or to pause and, and look at a butterfly and think about how it reflects who God is. And for those of you who are more indoorsy, uh, you could watch Planet Earth, BBC's series, and uh, that could lead you into worship in the comfort of your home. Um, However, you're not going to show up next Sunday and find that we're beginning a new sermon series aimed on describing the differences between the 1,600 species of trees in the Amazon rainforest. That's not going to happen. Uh, nor are you going to arrive some Sunday and find that I'm planning to dissect a frog in the pulpit, no matter how much some people might really like that. Um, these things tell us about who God is. They're a part of how God has revealed himself to us, but he's done so much more. Psalm 19, which we read at the beginning of this service um, as our call to worship, in that Psalm, there's this clear distinction between the heavens and what they declare and the word of God and what it's able to accomplish and communicate. And to borrow from Mark Twain, it's the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. We've thought about general re revelation before and how it compares to special revelation in the scriptures. And we've, talk, we've talked about it as a, as a thumbnail picture um, compared to a, a full-sized picture. Maybe you could imagine a, a database that's filled with all the thumbnail pictures of, of Claude Monet's paintings. And in fact, it exists. Here, look at this picture. You could go online to the claudemonetgallery.org and you can see thumbnail sketches of every painting that Claude Monet ever did. And you might even click on one and you could, you could blow it up and you could see the beauty of it, which is great. But you know what else you could do? You could go to a museum in Paris whose name I will not try to pronounce for you. Um, and you could go to this room. And this room is 360 degrees, they can't even take a picture of it, of, of different panels from Monet's water lilies set up. He donated this to this museum so that you can go into this room and you can look around and you can see all around you the paintings. They're six feet high 
and it's 330 linear feet all around that you could go in there and look at this. Big difference between that and this, right? Showing up there and actually seeing it as compared to the thumbnails. And that's sort of what we think about when we think about general revelation, which seems ama- strange that, that, that these scriptures, these, these words on a page would actually reveal God more than going and climbing Mount Everest. That there's more about God here in the revealed word world, it revealed word than there is in the world that's around us. Creation reveals God to our eyes like a, a picture on a computer, but but the word that that He's given us in the scriptures gives us this 360 degree picture of His majesty. It's the word of God, not creation, that ultimately according to Psalm 19, revives our souls, makes us wise, rejoices our hearts, enlightens our eyes, endures forever, is altogether righteous, is more to be desired than gold, is sweeter than honey, and offers great reward to those who follow its counsel. That's the word of God that does that for us. And so we don't dissect dissect frogs in the pulpit. We dissect the scriptures, and not just because nobody likes the smell of formaldehyde, but because God's word is is God's self-revelation of himself in unending layers of beauty. Now, if you've been at Grace Fellowship Church, even for a short period of time, then you know that we are people who take the Bible seriously. We try to center our services around it, and we center our time of preaching around the scriptures. We love God's word. We long to know it more, and not just to know it, but to allow it to shape who we are as a church and who we are as individuals. We want our minds to be renewed by the word so that our lives can be transformed into Christ-likeness. Our desire is not just to, to get the text of scripture right, but to get the text of scripture into our hearts so that it can change us. We can all admit that we sometimes might stray from that, that we might make the Bible an answer book or a source of just intellectual knowledge. But deep down, those of us who are spirit and dwelt followers of Jesus, deep down, our desire is to see the transformational intent of God's word impact our lives and to to respond to the passages that we read and study in the way that the spirit intends us to. We're followers of Jesus. We want to grow into the likeness of Jesus. And if we want to be changed, there's so many ways that are thrown at us about how we can change and how we can grow and how we can become more like Christ. But it's, it's only God's word that will do it for us. If we want to be shaped into the image of Christ, the spirit is going to apply the truth of the scriptures to us so that we can look more like him. If we want our church to move forward in power, then we have to be driven by the text of the scriptures. We have to allow the revelation of God in the word to tell us what to do and how to do it because it's the word of God that does the work of God. Every time we open the word of God, God speaks. We believe that. And so we want to always have the scriptures open in front of us and we want our hearts to be shaped by what we read. And so to that end, I want to share five convictions about God's word, five beliefs that we hold firmly to as we seek to do the work of ministry as a church and to do that ministry through the power of the word. 
These are convictions that are, are closely tied to our, our practice of being centered on the scriptures as we seek to do the work of ministry that we're called to do as a church. The, these, are, um, these are not original to me. I freely admit that I have stolen these. I stole them from Sean Martin, and I sent him a text this week to say, can I steal these? And he said, yes. Um, I heard him talk through these with the brothers when we were in, ha- in Haiti back in August and was just stirred by the encouragement that came from them. Um, and so I want to share them with you. But as I told him, I'll, as I heard a, a preaching professor at Moody once said, he says, I may steal the cream, but I make my own butter. I thought that was funny. But, um, so I'm going to steal his points, but I, I've kind of added my own stuff to it. Um, and my hope, too, just so you know, is to share this with the brothers as we gather in the Philippines, to help them to see that we need to have ministries that are centered on the Word of God. And then after we go through these five convictions, I just want to offer three real practical implications that sort of are already coming out of our conviction about the Word of God. Um, I'm not going to share anything probably radically new, but hopefully this serves as something to just reminds you, yes, these are things that I believe and, and encourages you and grounds you in these things that, that you love. Um, just because you've heard something to, before doesn't mean you don't listen to it again and again. Uh, maybe it's your, your, the, your favorite album or your favorite CD that you just listen to over and over again. And every time you hear new layers or new things that excite you or your favorite movie, you've got it memorized, but you watch it over and over again. And hopefully these are things that you know about God's word, but that you'll be reminded of, of its power in your life and in our church. And so five convictions about the word. Number one, the word of God creates. The word of God creates. If you were going to tell someone about how the word of God creates, where where would you go? I'd go to Genesis 1. I don't know about you, but it seems to say it over and over again there. If you looked at Genesis 1, Genesis 1 verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse six, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters. Verse nine, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights. And God said, verse 20, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man. And over and over again in Genesis 1, we find that God's word creates. It's by the power of his word that he brings the world into existence. Over and over, it's God's word that brings beauty out of darkness. Life, is that me? Out of nothingness. Um, and order to chaos. From the very beginning of the scriptures, we're made aware of the power of the word of God to accomplish his good purposes in the world. Psalm 33, verses 8 and 9, summarizes Genesis 1. This is what it says. Psalm 33, verses 8 and 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. John picks up on that idea of the word being the creative power in his gospel. And he echoes Genesis 1 when he says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God 
and the word was God. Jesus enters the world as the word of God and he speaks forth the life-giving word of the gospel. And he's constantly speaking forth these words of the gospel. In John 6, we know he's telling people hard sayings. And in John 6, verses 60 through 68, after telling people that, that life is found in him, that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood, John writes this about that scene. It's in John 6, and I want to read beginning in, in verse 60. John 6, beginning in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words, listen to this, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is what I told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus is the word and he speaks forth the words of life in the power of the spirit. The words of the gospel, the call to repent of our sins and to, to believe in the gospel spoken by the spirit and they, they bring life to our dead souls. They are words of eternal life and only Jesus has these words. Peter says, where else are we gonna go? Who else has words like this? Only you have the word that brings life, Jesus. We saw this so clearly in our study of the book of Acts. Jesus gives the words of eternal life to his disciples and then he sends them out to announce them to the world. He sends us to announce the life-creating words of the gospel. He gives us the kind of words that put the, the universe into order and he tells us to take them into the world. In John 17, 16 through 21, Jesus speaking to the Father says this, of his disciples and of us. He says, they are not of this world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus gives us this life-giving creative word and he sends us to do his work by proclaiming the word of, in the power of the spirit. Do we believe that the word of God still brings life and transformation to people? That it is creative in that way? That those who believe in the gospel are given a new life and that the only way they can hear it is to hear these words of Jesus. If we believe that, then our ministry has to be centered on God's revelation of himself and of his plan of redemption written down in the scriptures, every part of it. That's not an easy message to announce sometimes, but we can also trust that God's word not only is creative, that the word of God creates, but secondly, the word of God 
convicts. The word of God convicts. We read these words of the Lord in Jeremiah 23, 28 through 29. I've heard Trevor read these many times before he preaches. Verse 28 of Jeremiah 23, let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. Who, what has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Verse 28 tells us first that the prophet who has a dream or who is given a prophecy has to do what? He has to speak it faithfully. He has to say what God says. It has to be like Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, who was a good prophet. You know why he was a good prophet? The book of 1 Samuel tells us in chapter 3 that Samuel didn't let any of God's words fall to the ground. He said them all. And if God's word is spoken faithfully, if we, as we sometimes say in our fellowship of the words, if we stay on the line, we don't add to God's word or take away from it. If we speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, then it's like a fire. And it's like a hammer. It will burn with conviction and it will break up the stony hearts of people who are far from God or who are calloused in sin. From the beginning of Acts where Peter faithfully preaches, it breaks up stony hearts all the way to the end where Paul is proclaiming the gospel in Rome. The word of God convicts and when we're faithful to proclaim the scriptures and the truth of the gospel in, in the pulpit here and in our homes and with our friends and with co-workers and strangers, we can trust that the word of God will burn like a fire. It will break like a hammer. And even as Hebrews says, it will cut like a sword. The word of God convicts. We don't convict. We don't try to bring people to conviction. We let God's word do that. And so we center our lives and ministries on the word of God because we are convinced that the word of God creates, that the word of God convicts. Third, the word of God accomplishes God's purposes. The word of God accomplishes God's purposes. I don't know if you've had this experience. You set out to do something only to have things not go the way you expect. Um, maybe you're cooking dinner and the meal that you put on the table does not look like the picture uh, in the recipe book and it doesn't taste like you expected. Or maybe you plan to get a certain number of things done at work. You had a checklist and it was a long checklist. And at the end of the day, you look at your checklist and you got zero things done. Sometimes we, we make plans, we have great purpose, but our, our, we fail to accomplish our desires. But you know what God says? God, through the vehicle of his word, always accomplishes what he sets out to do. Every single time. Jordan read part of this in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. It says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The rain and the snow fall to the earth with intention. They're meant to water the ground so that plants will grow and ultimately that we will be provided with food. They have purpose and they always accomplish that purpose. And so too, God's word, when it's rightly understood and rightly taught, 
always does what it's supposed to do. It may be to rebuke, it may be to reprove, it may be to correct, it may be to train, but whatever it's supposed to do, it's going to accomplish that purpose because it's the inspired, breathed out, very word of God. It's going to do something that our words never could do, that our wisdom never could do. But if we are grounding ourselves in God's word, we know that as we teach from this pulpit, as we teach in our homes, as we instruct our children, as we talk to co-workers, that it's going to accomplish something that our words never could. You know, when the rain falls, sometimes you don't see what it's doing, but you can trust that it's accomplishing its purpose. The rain comes and you don't see plants sprout up right away, but you trust that the seed there is being germinated and it's growing and something is happening. And though there are times that we do not see how our reading or our hearing or our teaching or our preaching of the word is at work, we can have confidence that the word of God is working in us and it's working in others. That, that your daily Bible reading sometimes is difficult. And if we're honest, sometimes it's boring and we just cannot figure out what it's about. But we can trust that it's working the character of Christ in us. We're growing. We're ch- being changed by the renewing of our minds. Sometimes family devotions are crazy (laughs) and nobody's listening and we have no idea if we accomplished anything, but we can trust that God's word is going to accomplish its purposes. Sometimes you speak the gospel to others and you stumble over your words, but you're able to read the scriptures and help them see the truth of the gospel. And we can trust that no matter how weak we are, God's word always accomplishes its purposes. The gospel spoken to others, it could soften their hearts. Sometimes the gospel spoken hardens someone's heart. But no matter what God wants to do with his, uh, with his word, it will accomplish its purposes. We can know that God's word never returns void. It never returns empty. It always does what it's supposed to do. What great confidence that we can have. So the word of God creates, it convicts, It accomplishes God's purposes. And fourth, the word of God is sovereign over human weakness. The word of God is sovereign over human weakness. We said God is is never frustrated because his word always does what it's supposed to do. But you know who has to be the most frustrated being in the universe? Satan. Because even when he attempts to crush the power of God's word, word and God's truth, it always ends up backfiring on him. One example, Paul, imprisoned in Rome, wrote to the church in Philippi, and he told them that his imprisonment was actually being used by God for the spread of the gospel. Because he was in prison, the imperial guard was hearing the gospel. And God even used his enemies to accomplish his purpose. People that were speaking negatively we're still getting the gospel out. This is how he says it in Philippians 1, 15 to 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, but sincerely, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Then he responds, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. I don't care why you're proclaiming the gospel. You're proclaiming the gospel. And the gospel always has power. It's sovereign over human weakness. It's sovereign over human sin. And as we seek to be a a church that does the work of God by the proclamation of the word of God, 
God's word overrides all of our foolishness and all of our sinfulness and all of our false motives and all of our lack of ability and understanding, all of our errors and mistakes. It overrides the attempts of enemies to silence us or to mock us. It overrides the fact that we don't have a building. It overrides the fact that we meet in the middle of the afternoon on a Sunday. None of that can stop God's word from accomplishing its purposes through us. It, God is sovereign over our weaknesses. Our hope is not in anything else. Your hope is not in me or the talents that I might have as some sort of a preacher. Your hope is not in your own ability as a teacher, as a proclaimer of the gospel. God is sovereign over, over all of that and he uses us in our weakness. Our hope is in God's word. And all of this leads us to our fifth um, concluding statement, which is that the word of God is unstoppable. The word of God is unstoppable. I love this verse from Proverbs 21.30. Proverbs 21.30 boldly announces that no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. A story in Acts 5 illustrates that truth. You remember the apostles had been arrested for proclaiming the gospel, but then we're told very simply in Acts 5, no fanfare, we're told that an angel showed up, opened the doors, brought them out, and commanded them in verse 20 that they should go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. You remember the story, they're called then, the, the council says, hey, go get those guys out of the prison and bring them here because they got to stand before us. They say, well, they're not there, they're actually in the temple proclaiming the gospel that we told them to stop proclaiming. And so they finally get rearrested. And when they make it clear that they're not going to listen to this council, they're going to continue proclaiming the good news about Jesus. This guy named Gamaliel stands up and he gives them this counsel. He says in Acts 5, 35 to 39, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Do you see what Gamaliel's doing? If you kill the leader, eventually this thing's going to die out. Verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Wise counsel from Gamaliel. The word of God is unstoppable and his words proved to be true, didn't they? That it was, they could not overthrow this small group of disciples proclaiming the gospel, but it has been unstoppable until this present day. God's purposes and plans are powered by the proclamation of the word of God. And as we seek to allow the, the word of God to do the work of God, empowered by the spirit of God, we can know that God's word is unstoppable. It cannot be stopped. So those are our convictions. Three practical implications then that come from these five convictions that are just immediately applicable and, and maybe will shape how you think about a few things, okay? Um, one obviously understood is that, and this isn't one of the three, <laughs> is that you should, you should read your Bible. 
I mean, if the Bible is that powerful, then we should be submitting to it in any way that we can. We should be soaking in God's word, not as some sort of rote thing that when I have my devotions, it makes Jesus happy and my day goes better. No, so that I'm shaped by God's word, so that I come to know who God is, that I can tap into this power that he's given me and the wisdom that's there. So yes, read your Bible. But the first one is we, we must seek answers to our deepest questions by looking to God's word. We have deep questions, all of us, and we must seek the answers to our deepest questions by looking to God's word. Why would I say that that's a practical implication? Well, because we've got some deep questions that we're going to ask after the service. And where are we going to turn for answers? The first place we're going to turn is to God's word, because God's word has the answer to the deepest questions that we have. So as we seek to answer all these questions during our potluck and then in weeks ahead, we're going to look to the scriptures. And in doing that, we're trusting in the sufficiency of scripture, that the the scriptures have in them what we need. That's a truth that's expressed in our statement of faith. This is what our statement of faith says about the scriptures. The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were given by the inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. I'll read that again. The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were given by the inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Now, having read that, we go to the Bible to look for answers, but we also recognize that the Bible is authoritative on all matters of faith and practice, but it's not authoritative on all all knowledge in the world. That's what our statement of faith says. It's, it's certain, uh, there's a certain and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. It's not going to tell you how to fix your car. It's not going to tell you where you should go to dinner on Friday night. But it, it does tell us, it gives us wisdom about all matters of faith and practice. And so we trust the, the, the sufficiency of Scripture in our spiritual lives and in our ministries but we don't treat it like an answer book to everything. That can get, you can get dangerous if we start thinking about it that way. There, there are some questions that the Bible doesn't have clear-cut answers on. But it gives us wisdom. It gives us wisdom to come to some conclusions. All that to say is that, that where the Bible speaks clearly, we, we want the Bible to be authoritative in our lives and to answer the deepest questions of our souls. If we have questions about, about uh, saving knowledge, about faith, about obedience, about how we are to live the Christian life, the Bible is the authority for those things. And where the Bible is, is clear, that's what we listen. But where the Bible is unclear or the Bible is silent, we seek wisdom and we respond with grace to people who disagree with us. But when it comes to what's clear in the scriptures, that's where we stand and that's where we base our lives on. So today we're gonna let God's word work in our lives as we turn to it for wisdom, as we ask questions and then say, well, what does scripture say about it? Then that's something that we're always striving to do. And as we seek answers, we're trying to read God's word and we're trying to read it well. We're trying to read it within its proper historical and literary context. We're trying to see how it fits in with the rest of scripture and what all of scripture says. And there's more to that, which leads us to the second implication, which is first, we, we, seek, we must seek answers to our deepest questions by looking to God's word. Secondly, we should study books of the Bible like Isaiah. 
I'm giving you an argument for why we're going to study the book of Isaiah for who knows how long. Um, we study books of the Bible like Isaiah. Now, there's a time and a place to preach uh, topical sermon or theme themes on, on different themes within Scripture. In fact, I think our series through the Beatitudes in some ways picked up on that. It was it was themes of of what does it mean to be poor in spirit. And we, we use those to think about some other areas while keeping it within its context. There, there are times when we're going to look at various scriptures to draw out wisdom, which is what we're doing today. It's times to do that. But the steady diet of our church is to walk through books of the Bible and allow those books to change and challenge us and to teach us, to allow God's word to be unfolded by a divinely inspired author and, and allow that to guide us into how we should believe and how we should live and how we should minister in the world. That we take a book like Isaiah and say, God, through the Holy Spirit, guided this author along to write these things down and he did it with a purpose. And there's a, there's a, there's a cohesion to this book and it fits within the whole of scripture. And we wanna understand how that works. Isaiah, to me, does not look like an easy treasure to mine. I feel like when I think about getting there, that we're going to hit some solid rock that we're going to have to get a, a jackhammer out to get through and to get down to it. But any treasure worth finding isn't easy to dig up, right? If the treasure is valuable, if it's just kind of, it's not going to just be on the surface. Someone's going to hide it well to get down to it. And God's word is clear. God's not hiding his truth from us. But it's going to take work to get down in and to understand what the scriptures say. But if we, are, if we have these convictions about God's word, that it's, it has this creative power, that it can convict, that it can shape and change our lives, then it's worth our time to study the book of Isaiah and to try to understand what God was saying through this prophet. So we enter into this book with confidence that God's word is going to do a deep work in us, that we come every Sunday with expectation saying, God's going to teach us something from the book of Isaiah, and I'm excited to learn from it. And so these convictions lead us to teach through books of the Bible. And then the final implication is that because of these convictions, we train others how to read, understand, teach, and preach God's word. Because we believe this about God's word, we train others. We are committed to training others how to read, understand, teach, and preach God's word. I'm speaking about our trips to the Philippines. There are a lot of good things that we could do in traveling to the Philippines. There's a lot of people that go to the Philippines and do many good things. Gospel-focused work that happens in the Philippines. But our church, for whatever reason, has been called to help pastors and church leaders know how to read, understand, teach, and preach the scriptures. Because we believe that God's, as God's people understand God's word, they are transformed. That doesn't mean every other work that's happened in the Philippines isn't as great as what we're doing. That's not what I'm trying to say. But we have a conviction that this is important. Because as, as a church, as, as a pastor is transformed to see the power of God's word proclaimed, he's going to teach and preach that to his church more effectively. And as the church hears God's word preached and, and, and taught more effectively, they're going to be transformed. And as, as that church as a whole is transformed, then communities are going to be transformed. And as communities are transformed, then cities are transformed. And entire countries can be transformed because of the power of God's word proclaimed rightly. 
if we have those convictions, then I, I believe that the hope for all nations is the truth of God's word. It's the truth of the gospel. As Sean and I were in Haiti, he emphasized to me over and over again, it's not money. It's not resources. It's not things that need to be sent to Haiti because it's all coming in. There's stacks and stacks of, of, of items that have been sent for relief. It's that there's spiritual darkness and the gospel needs to come in and transform people's lives and give them something to live for and something even to die for, to give them a hope for eternity. The gospel will change people. The word of God does the work of God. We're committed to seeing a movement of God's word flow powerfully through churches and through nations because it's God's word that does his work. Churches that can submit to the scriptures and be guided and shaped by them will be transformative. Now, I warned you at the beginning, I wasn't going to tell you anything new. I don't think I have told you anything new, but I hope that you're filled with this renewed confidence in God's word that you're more fully convinced that it creates, it convicts, it accomplishes God's purposes, it's sovereign over our weaknesses, and it's unstoppable. That you're, you're compelled to continue to seek wisdom from God's word on your own. But also that you're excited to begin this journey through the book of Isaiah, that we're going to dive into this book that's, that's hundreds and hundreds of years old, but that has God's truth in there, and we can find it, and we can learn from it, and we can be changed by it. And also that you're committed to, to partnering with sister churches around the world that we can help them to be committed to the scriptures. That maybe you don't go, but you can pray and, and you give to this church so that we can help pastors be raised up to know how to preach God's word. So my hope is that we would never stop trusting that the word of God does the work of God. That as we as a church seek to do ministry, that we're not relying on tips and techniques and tricks, but we're relying on the scriptures and we're trusting that if we are faithful, that God is going to change us and he's going to change his world. And so may our trust in that, our trust that, that, that God's word does God's work, may that trust lead us to be women and men who are committed to letting the scriptures have authority in our lives, in our, in our churches. And we can change the world because of that.